Well, good morning. It is good to be back with you this week. I appreciate Pastor Dave uh, filling in for me last week while my family and I were able to get away. And uh, my wife and I were able to celebrate our 21st wedding anniversary. And uh, I'm still amazed that she's sticking around with me that long. Those of you who know me well know are just as amazed as I am that she has done that. But we are excited to have been able to get away, but it's always good to be back with you. And it's always to be, it's good to be back uh, on days like today, too, when I get to hear you sing. Um, it's, in, it's enjoyable for me to kind of be up on the front up there, and I get to hear it as it, as it kind of comes from the, from the back to the front. And, and to be a part of such a wonderfully singing church, uh, singing these songs of faith and, and declaring our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is a true blessing. And so... Uh, it's good to be back with you today, and I'm grateful for the staff that I have that uh, I can lean on them, and um, I, I kid them sometimes. You know, the Bible says Joseph worshipped leaning on his staff, and uh, I get to worship leaning on mine once in a while as well, so that's good. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, take them out and turn with me to the book of Genesis, uh, and turn with me over to Genesis 24. Today we are going to relaunch ourselves into the book of Genesis. And I say relaunch because if you've been with us over the years, you'll know that we have already covered about the first 25 chapters of Genesis in our study through this book. Uh, the first time was back in 2012. Uh, we covered the first 11 chapters of Genesis, looking at uh, the primeval history uh, and, and also the beginning of civilization that's told to us in those chapters. And then in 2015, we went back and launched ourselves into Genesis again, and we began in chapter 12 and moved through chapter 25 looking at the life of Abraham. And so, incidentally, all of those sermons, all of those are online on our church website, so you can find them there, listen to them, watch them if you choose. Um, but having looked and really studied the first half of Genesis, I felt led of the Lord to, to, to take us and pick us up sort of where we left off and to begin moving through the last half of Genesis. And I have entitled this study of Genesis, The Story That Explains Our Stories. The Story That Explains Our Stories. I'll go ahead and say up front, I have no idea how long it's going to take us to get through it. I, I just don't know. It, it, it might be shorter, it might be longer. We'll just have to hang around and see how long it does take us to go through it. But here's what I do believe. I believe that, that studying God's inerrant word is worthy of our examination. And I also believe that, that God's people are blessed when we dig into his word. And so that's my goal. That's, that's really the, the whole goal that I have for us moving through this text. Now, as I considered how to sort of begin again or to relaunch into this study, I immediately became aware that it would be difficult to just pick up right where we left off without at least going and, and sort of setting the stage based upon our previous study, particularly of the life of Abraham. And when we looked at the life of Abraham, that study showed us that Abraham was a man of great faith. But his faith was also so intense that it moved him into a life of obedience as well. So his faith was accompanied by obedience. You'll recall that Abraham willingly packed up everything that he owned and moved away from everything he had ever known to a land that God would show him when he was 75 years old. 75 years old. All because he believed God's promise to him that he would give him a land. 
You'll also remember that Abraham held on to not only the promise that God would give him a land, but that God would give him offspring. And, and the interesting thing about that is that he said he would give him offspring more numerous than the stars of the sky or the sand on the seashore. Even though both he and his wife Sarah were old when God made that promise, and even though it lasted many years after the promise before the child was ever born. You'll also recall that when that child was born, Isaac, wasn't too long after that that God told Abraham to take him up onto Mount Moriah where he would slay him in an elaborate sacrifice simply because God had told him to do that. Now when you begin to consider these highlights of Abraham's life, what you really begin to come to understand is that the character study that we learned about with Abraham was one that, that taught us about what it meant to trust in God, but not only what it meant to trust in God, but to obey God because of that faith. But that realization doesn't mean that Abraham was without his faults. No, uh, though he was a man of faith, he was also a sinner. You'll remember that, that uh, he lied about the true identity of his wife, Sarah, not once, but twice. The first time to Pharaoh of Egypt, the second time to Abimelech, the, the king of Gerar. He did all that in order to make things good for himself and to sort of save his own neck, we might say. We also remember that even though he believed God's promises to him, particularly as it pertained to offspring, Abraham became impatient with God's timing. And that led him to actually father a child by Sarah's handmaid named Hagar. And that child was named Ishmael. But Ishmael was not the plan, he was not the promise that God had given him. And, and what we wind up finding out is that Abraham's actions carried heavy penalties felt not only by him and by his family, but the consequences of which we still feel even today in our world. So while on the one hand, the book of Genesis paints for us a picture of Abraham's faith coupled with, with Abraham's obedience, it does not hide from us the ugly nature of Abraham's sin and his selfishness, nor does it hide from us the heartache that resulted from those. And what that tells us is that though Abraham casts a long shadow across biblical and secular history, his story is not the story of the Bible. Abraham's story is not the story of the Bible. That actually will become evident to us this morning as we read the, the, and remind ourselves that Abraham dies. But before he dies, he passes off the baton to his son Isaac, who we will read in subsequent passages, ultimately passes on the baton to his son Jacob. And as we understand this, what we recognize is that in each of their stories, while we examine their lives and while we conclude from them things that we can and extrapolate from the stories, think ways of application to our own lives, our ultimate attention will be drawn to God. Our ultimate attention will be drawn to the God of heaven and earth who created all things, the God who is faithful to his promises, the God whose sovereignty demands and dictates a response from us of faith and obedience just as it dictated that of Abraham. So therefore, this story will ultimately help us make sense of our stories. And so to help set ourselves to relaunch into this book of Genesis, I want to go back and read about how before Abraham died, he, he arranged 
for Isaac, his son, to have a wife. And we'll read about that in chapter 24, verses 1 through 9. And then I want us to flip over to, to chapter 25 and to, to read about what happened in Abraham's final years from verses 5 through 11. And hopefully this review will help orient us as we continue our journey through Genesis. So let's begin there in chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of God this morning. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, please put your hand under my thigh and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife from my son, from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife from my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Now turn with me to chapter 25. Pick up in verse 5. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived, 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. And Isaac dwelt at Beher Laha Roy. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. For the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for bringing us here on this day to be able to open your word, to study it, to be able to allow your Holy Spirit to speak to us through it. Now, I pray that would happen today, and I pray that our hearts would be in tune with you, that our ears would be open, that you would speak, and that we would listen, and that we would follow through in obedience. I pray this in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. So we began in chapter 24 this morning and this like review and the setup for us as we continue our study through this book. And it began with this quest for, for Abraham to find a, a, a suitable wife for his son. Now, you should know that by this point, Sarah, Isaac's mother, and Abraham's wife is dead. And according to chapter 23, Sarah was 127 years old when she died. So if we do some math, 
take what we know about Isaac's birth, that he was born when Sarah was 90 and she died when she was 127. Then when we get to chapter 24, we realize that Isaac is about 37 years old, somewhere in that, that range. And, and, and really Sarah's passing probably uh, served as a wake-up call for Abraham to the fact that Isaac was growing older and yet Isaac still did not have a wife. Isaac still did not have an heir of his own. The promise was not simply that Abraham would have the son, Isaac, but that Isaac would have an heir as well and that God's promise and his blessing would continue. And so many believe that Sarah's passing probably served as a wake-up call to let Abraham know that it was past time for Isaac to have a bride. So he called in his oldest and his, his most trusted servant to go and to find a bride for his son. And in that culture, marriages were different than they are today. Folks didn't just go and stay together and see if they could work it out and live together until they could find figure out if this was going to work. That's not how marriages went together at that point. At that particular point in time, marriages were arranged by the mothers and the fathers. And in this particular instance, Abraham was arranging the, the marriage of his son to a woman and he was giving that seating, that authority over to his servant. And he tells his servant, I want you to go back to Mesopotamia. I want you to go back to Ur, the land of the Chaldeans, where I'm from. I want you to go back to the place that I left so many years ago because that's where my family still is. And there I want you to go and find a wife for my son. Now, if you can just imagine that you were that servant and you were standing in Abraham's tent when Abraham gave that directive, I can only imagine that there would be a few questions that would run into your mind, a few questions that I would have if that had been me. A few questions that I even think that our text brings out for us. I mean, think about it. How was, how was the servant supposed to go and find a suitable wife for Abraham's son? What were the criteria that he needed to look for? How would he know when he found her? And if he did find her, how was he supposed to convince her to leave her home and to come with him to meet some boy that she'd never met before? And what would her family think? And would they even let their daughter go with them? Now, you may even be able to think of some other questions that would have come to your mind, but I think these, these at bare minimum would have come forward at the beginning. And I want you to know, Abraham didn't have all the answers to all these questions. Nevertheless, what he did have was faith. He had faith in the fact that God would work behind the scenes to accomplish his will. And, and the certainty of his faith is expressed to us by what we read there in verse 7. Notice again what the Bible says there in chapter 24, verse 7. The Lord God of heaven, Abraham says, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family and who spoke to me and swore to me, say, to your descendants I give this land. Listen, he will send his angel before you. And you shall take a wife for my son from there. Did you notice? Did you notice how Abraham states very definitively, I don't have answers to all your questions. This is what I know. God will send an angel before you. He will make the doors open for you. He will do what he's promised that he will do. God will take care of that. This is what some have described as the simple reliance on the providence of God. Ultimately, Abraham simply believed that God's unseen hand would do all that was necessary to lead his servant to the bride that God chose for Isaac. That's why I say that the main character in this story is not Abraham. The main character in this story is not Isaac. 
The main character in this, in this narrative is God. And that narrative reveals something about God to us. It's the first point that I want you to note on your outline this morning. The first point that I want you to see is this. When faced with questions for which we have no answers, the unseen hand of God can be relied upon to accomplish what he has promised. When faced with questions for which we have no answers, the unseen hand of God can be relied upon to accomplish what he has promised. Brothers and sisters, though we may often be baffled and confounded and perplexed and mystified by our circumstances and what the future may hold for us, God is not. He is neither baffled, confounded, mystified, or perplexed. And that's why we have to learn to trust God. That is what faith is all about. Faith is about a dependence upon the unseen hand of God who will accomplish what he has promised that he would accomplish. Abraham understood this. And at this point in his life, he was willing to stake everything he had on God's ability to bring his will to pass. And that's really what the remainder of chapter 24 goes on to reveal. I would encourage you to go back and read that. It is an interesting uh, narrative that explains exactly how the providence of God came together to bring Abraham's great niece named Rebekah to the exact spot at the exact time when his servant was there to draw water from the well to feed his camels. It's an amazing story that reveals exactly what the unseen hand of God can do and what he does do. God divinely intersected their paths and we also read in chapter 24 how he worked behind the scenes to bring Rebekah, Isaac's perfectly suited wife, to him. And how this story really informs us and explains our own personal stories is this. You may be sitting in a place right now where you don't have all the answers to the questions that you have. People may be asking you things or wanting to know from you certain things and you don't have the answers. And you may not even be able to answer your own questions. But I want you to know, based upon what the Bible reveals to us, you can trust in God. And you can trust in His ability to accomplish and to fulfill every promise that He has ever made. Listen, if He can speak and the world come from nothing into existence, if, if He has the power to breathe the breath of life into our bodies, if His knowledge is so vast and so great that as Jesus says in the New Testament that a sparrow cannot fall from the sky, that he does not know it, then brothers and sisters, he can be trusted to take care of you and he can take, be trusted to take care of me and to keep his promises to us. Now, the fact that God is a promise-keeping God is revealed to us in our text in another way. We read over in chapter 25 about Abraham's death. That was in verses 7 through 11. But what I want to draw your attention to is the fact that in the paragraph prior to that and in the paragraph after that uh, death announcement, we have uh, really two genealogical sections. The first verses of chapter 25 relate to us the fact that after Sarah died, Abraham married another woman. Her name was Keturah. And after marrying Keturah, he had five sons with him, or with her, and, and excuse me, six sons with her. And, and then also the, the, the text lists seven grandsons that Abraham had. And, and so that, that's really there in the first four verses of chapter 25. And then if you look down in verses 12 through 18, what you read there is all of the genealogical section regarding Ishmael's sons. Ishmael wound up having 12 sons of his own. They were princes. 
And so these sections tell us about that. And, and I believe that the writer included them there on purpose. I think he included the, the, the text saying that Abraham had other sons by this woman named Keturah. And then also telling us all about Ishmael's sons. Right there sandwiched in the middle of that is, is Abraham's death announcement. And I think that was done on purpose because it was there for the writer to be able to reiterate that God fulfilled all of his promises to Abraham and even this. You remember what what God said to Abraham in Genesis 13, verse 16, he says, Abraham, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. So that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. In other words, if you could figure out how to, how to count all the dust of the earth, then you'll end up being able to count your descendants. But since you can't, there are going to be many more than you'll ever be able to know. Then in Genesis 15, verse 5, he says, look now toward the heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said, so shall your descendants be. And then in chapter 17, verse 6, God says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. I believe that the fact that Ishmael's sons were listed as princes is there to once more inform us that God kept his promises to Abraham even there. But that's not the only promises that we read about. God also promised Abraham in chapter 15, verse 15. He says, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried at a good old age. And I like that. That's a, good, that's a good promise. You will be buried at a good old age. And then the writer here, who I believe is Moses, picks up in chapter 25 and tells us this. He says in verses 7 and 8, Abraham lived to be 175 years old and then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. And an old man full of years and was gathered to his people. Once again, what that text tells us is that God fulfills his promises. God keeps every promise he ever makes. And what he says he will do, he does. And friend, you can never go wrong by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. You can never go wrong by placing your faith in God. In the face of questions for which we have no answers, God's unseen hand can always be counted upon. It can always be relied upon to accomplish what he has promised. But I want you to know that that confidence necessitates something from us. You see, while, while God is always faithful to us, the question, our challenge is, are we going to be found faithful to him? That leads me to the second point that I want you to note on your outline this morning. You see, what this text reveals to us is that our reliance upon the faithfulness of God must result in our resolve to live in conformity to his promises. Let me refer you once again back to what we read in chapter 24. Abraham sent his servant out to find a wife for his, his son Isaac, but notice that he made his servant swear in verse 3. He says, swear to me that you will not go find a wife among the Canaanites among these people in, around whom I dwell. Now, that would have been the easy thing to do. He wouldn't have had to travel near as far. There were kings right there in Canaan, so he could have found the king and found one of those beautiful princesses that was a, a Canaanite princess, and bam, you've got a match made in heaven right there for Isaac. But to have done such a thing would have been to go against what God had designed and planned when he set Abraham apart from all of those Canaanite nations. Remember the Canaanite people were the ones who would ultimately be dispossessed from their land. God was going to drive them out of the land of Canaan and give that over 
to, to Abraham and to his, his seed. And also remember that the Canaanites were descendants of a man named Canaan who was the grandson of Noah. And if you go back and you read, you will find that Noah placed a curse on Canaan. And therefore, for Isaac to have married a Canaanite woman would have nullified God's redemptive plan. So that is why Abraham is sent back to Mesopotamia. He's sent back to Ur of the Chaldeans, back to where Abraham was from. But the servant raised a valid question. He says, but upon finding a suitable wife for, for Isaac, what happens if she doesn't want to come with me? I mean, shouldn't Isaac go with me in order to coerce her? Absolutely not, Abraham says. Under no circumstances was Isaac to ever go back to where Abraham was from. You see, God had called Abraham to the land of promise. And Isaac was the son of God's promise. And therefore, Isaac was not to leave the land of Canaan. And so far as we can ascertain from reading the Old Testament, Isaac never once left the land of Canaan his whole life. And so what this story reiterates for us is that if we are going to rely, if we're going to truly place our faith and rely on the unseen hand of God to accomplish what he's promised in our lives, then, then we must also understand that our reliance upon him must result in our resolve to live in accordance with his promises, to live in conformity to his promises. Now that truth is demonstrated for us by what we read in chapter 25 as well. Because with all of those extra sons that, that Abraham had, the sons from Keturah, and then also Ishmael and all of his grandsons, remember that even though all of that was there, Isaac was the promised seed. And God confirmed with Abraham before Isaac was born that Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call him Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him. Though Abraham had those other sons, though he had a blood bond with them, they were not the inheritors of the promise. And so what we read in chapter 25, verse 5, is that Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. This was Abraham's way of safeguarding that covenant that God had made with him. And he knew full well that Isaac was, was not only God's gift to him, but that he was also God's appointed heir of the promise. And so Abraham acted in accordance with that covenant. And he did so by making sure that Isaac would receive the heritage of the promise that God had made. Now that didn't mean that Abraham didn't love his other sons. In fact, he did. He, he demonstrated that love by giving gifts to them. He gave them gifts from all that he had amassed in his life. But we also read that as, just as he had done with Ishmael earlier in, in years earlier, Abraham sent those sons away to the east, away from Isaac, his son. Now, when we read this in our culture today, that may seem very foreign to us. It seems very strange, even, even callous when we consider how Abraham treated those other sons. But understand this. Abraham was willing to obey God and to live in conformity to God's promises. He was willing to do whatever was necessary to ensure that God's promises to him and ultimately to Isaac were protected and defended. And how this story makes sense of our stories is that it tells us that we must recognize this important fact. God's promises to us are are more wonderful and they are greater than anything that we can imagine. 
And therefore his vast promises, not the least of which are peace and joy and hope and salvation and eternal life. Those promises demand that we ask ourselves this question. Are we living in conformity to his promises? In other words, has our faith in God's ability to fulfill his promises and to bring us those things that he has said that he would bring to us, has that translated into our resolve to live lives of obedience and conformity to such blessings? See, all throughout the scriptures, we see that true faith is always accompanied by obedience. In fact, the Apostle James, in his epistle, uses Abraham's life as a testimony and as an illustration of that truth. Two different times in chapter 2 of James, he says, faith without works is dead. In other words, a life that professes faith in God and professes faith in God's promises but does not live in conformity or in obedience to the truth that God reveals, well, that's a life that negates the validity of the very faith that they say they possess. And the point that James is making is that faith and works go together. Faith and obedience go hand in hand. And what was said of Abraham ought to be said of each and every one of us. If we say that we rely on God's providence, if we rely on the unseen hand of God to fulfill his promises to us, then we must resolve to live our lives in conformity to those promises. And then listen, the benefit of living that way is demonstrated by the description we're given of Abraham's death. In fact, note the last point on your outline this morning. The third point is this. Faith and obedience result in a satisfied life and a hope that reaches beyond this world. Faith and obedience result in a satisfied life and a hope that reaches beyond this world. I want you to notice once more what we read in verse 8. It was after 175 years of life that Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. We might say this, Abraham didn't just limp across the finish line. He finished strong. Now, we noted earlier that such a description served to show how God fulfilled his promises to Abraham that he would live a long time. But when he says that he was full of years, what does that mean? What does it mean when you're full of years? That description is something more than just a quantity of time. It's something that points to the quality of life that is being lived as well. And that's the benefit, I think, of a life that is lived with obedience. It's a well-lived life. Chuck Swindoll states this, that Abraham died with a full smile. He died full of years, full of satisfaction, and full of contentment. I don't know about you, but when my time comes, that's exactly the way that I want to die as well. I hope it can be said of me exactly the same way. See, on the other hand, I don't know if you've known anyone like this. I have. Those, when the end of their life came, they looked back upon it with regret. They looked back upon their life at some of the decisions that they made and choices that they made, and they regretted those decisions. They regretted the outcome of those decisions and the consequences that those decisions brought upon them. And as a result, the prospect of what lay in front of them was fearful to them. I want you to know that it's not the case with Abraham. When death approached him, the Bible says that he died full. He died satisfied. He died content. 
And he died confident that the same God who had promised and fulfilled every promise he had ever made would fulfill his promises, not just in this life, but in the life to come. Notice also that we read that Abraham was gathered to his people. Contrary to what we might first think, Abraham was not gathered to all of his his human ancestors. That's what we would initially think about that. But when Abraham was buried, no, he was buried in a tomb that he had bought for Sarah when she had died. And his bones and Sarah's bones were the only bones in that cave. And so consequently, according to context, to be gathered to his people didn't mean that Abraham was gathered to his earthly ancestors. Rather, it means that he was gathered to his God-believing ancestors. Kent Hughes has put it this way. He says, Abraham was gathered to the living fellowship of the redeemed. Now, I don't know if Caroline's in here or not, but I've been thinking about this. I think that's what I want, but on my tombstone. He was gathered to the fellowship of the redeemed. Abraham knew what was waiting on him. And when he died, he was gathered at a ripe old age, full and satisfied, and he was gathered to his people. He was gathered to the people who had trusted in the same promises that he had trusted in. He was gathered to the people whose faith was in God. Now, if we do a little math, what we will recognize is that if he died at 175 years old, and if he was 75 when he left earth, then he had spent 100 years roaming the earth, waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled. A full century as a sojourner and as a pilgrim. Trusting God. My guess is, is that Abraham had come to the conclusion, conclusion that this earth was not his final destination. After a hundred years of waiting for all those promises to be fulfilled, my guess is, is that he had come to recognize that there was something greater beyond this world. In fact, that's what the writer of Hebrews tells us about Abraham and Chapter 11, verses 9 through 10 says, By faith Abraham dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents. For he waited for the city, which has a foundation whose builder and maker is God. That was Abraham's hope. That God, who had had made such great and grand promises to him in this life, would not only take care of him in this life, but even more so would take care of him in the life that would soon come beyond the grave and how that story it helps explain our stories is that the same hope that Abraham had is offered to you and to me you see what we learn from the further revelation of scripture is that you and I have no need to fear death because death is not a threat to the person who trusts in Jesus Christ and who lives by his word Jesus came to die and to rise again so that you and I, sinners, sinners who desperately need to be saved, might be saved through our faith in him. And that we might be gifted with forgiveness of our sins and given eternal life with the family of the redeemed. So faith and obedience, listen, that results in a satisfied life and a hope that reaches beyond this world to a city whose builder and maker is God. And that then leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning. My sermon in a sentence is this. God's faithfulness to his promises demands that we live lives of faith and obedience while relying on him and resting in the hope that he gives. As I stated before, 
God is the central figure in this passage. And we're going to continue to see that as we make our way through this book. At times, God is front and center. But more often than not, he is quietly working behind the scenes to bring his will to pass. And the truth of the matter is, that's every one of our testimonies as well. I don't know about you, but God has never once come down in physical form and appeared to me. God has never once in a booming voice spoken to me from the heavens and thundered down with what he wanted me to do. Yet God has always spoken to me and led me through his very word that he has left and that he has authored in order to move upon us by his Holy Spirit to bring us and bring our lives into conformity to the promises that he gives. His word is sufficient to reveal everything that we need to know about him and about how he has accomplished for us our great salvation. And what his word reveals is that God is always faithful. He always delivers on what he promises. Others may lie and deceive us. God never has and he never will. That's why he commands that you and I must trust in his son, the one and only way, the one and only truth, and the one and only life. The hope of our salvation rests solely in our trust in the only solution to our problem, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. If you have never believed on Jesus, then I invite you to do that today. I invite you to trust in him. I invite you to believe that he is who he says he is and that he is the rewarder of them who diligently seek him. I ask that you would trust in him and make him Lord of your life. If you have trusted in him, if your claim is that you have placed your faith in Jesus, then the question that you must ask yourself is, are you living a life that conforms to the truth of his word? Our confession is not just that Jesus is our Savior, but that he is also our Lord. And his lordship demands that we live obedient lives. Just as it was said of Abraham, so it should be with us. You see, one day, like Abraham, each of us are going to breathe our last. It's inevitable. We're all going to face it. And because that's true, and because there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun, we must recognize that God's faithfulness to his promises demand that we live lives of faith and obedience while relying on him and resting in the hope that he gives. That is how this story explains our stories. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning.